What can I say? Classic Trek at its finest. Uh, well, that's not really the way I mean that. Because I can think of better Trek episodes, in fact. I can think of uh, one, two, three, four, five, right off the top of my head. But what I mean by that is this is... This is the seminal classic Trek episode right here, in my opinion. If you, if you wanted to encapsulate all of what TOS is into one episode, if you want to see if someone's going to be interested in watching TOS, have them watch this episode. It's a little corny, a little cheesy. The effects have not aged super well. Right? You know, that's, that's TOS. It's a 60s show. But the ideas, the concepts, the acting, you know, all of that is core TOS. And if they're into that, yeah, okay, then you could go ahead and show them the rest of the show. I'm going to start, I'm not even joking, I'm going to start using this as my recommendation. If people want to get into us, watch Devil in the Dark. If you like that, sure, do the rest of it. This was written by Mr. Kuhn, Gene Kuhn, and directed by Mr. Pevney. So we've got two tr tr uh, classic uh, regulars here. And I want to comment on something here really quick. This is actually let me let me rewind a second here. Let's let's talk about some basic makings of things. We've got uh, th during the making of this episode, Shatner's father died. Shatner was actually close to his dad. A lot of accounts differ on the specifics, but many sources show that Shatner was like, "No, we need to keep filming." And the general idea given is Star Trek was already not doing great. There were issues and problems, and you know they they were. They still had the, the producers breathing down their necks, and of course, this is when a certain deal st had already started going through. Uh, financial deals, hang on, i got to rewind a second. It's hard to discuss timelines when it comes to certain things, uh, when it comes to analyzing these works, because things happen so slowly, right? Like, so I've, I've mentioned Paramount taking over Star Trek, right? Well, that was barely in the works at this point. I could mention that season two was something that was pushed forward under um, WB Western or whatever it is. I'll, I'll look up the name later because I don't remember right now. I didn't write it down. But that was that doesn't officially happen until the gap in between season one and season two. But that also is something that obviously didn't just happen. It's not like one day someone just walks up and you know. I, I've noticed a lot of people tend to assume that large scale economic transactions happen like small scale ones do. You know, I'd, I'd like to buy this dice here, right? So you walk up, you buy it, and it's yours. The transaction takes a minute, or, you know, closer to 15 minutes if there's an old woman in front of you who has a lot of coupons. But in the large-scale sense, those things take days, weeks, months, in many cases, years. So this merger, this acquisition, actually, of Desilu Studios was already well in hand at this point. Now, that's important because one of the things that was hammered out was they said, okay, listen, we're going to purchase this but Star Trek, now, okay, hang on, let me rewind one more second. I have no proof of this. But from my own analysis of the situation, my own understanding of how economics work, especially when it comes to Hollywood, what happened was Desilu greenlit season two of Star Trek as a negotiating tactic for the acquisition that was happening at the time. This then meant that the other company, I'm going to have to look up their damn names, aren't I? The company in between Desilu and Paramount, I forget their names. They would be it would be mandated for them to continue this because the season had already been greenlit and they are now contractually obligated to carry forward all of the current projects that Desilu was pushing. Therefore, season two of Star Trek was now contractually assured. Sense make? Even in the sake of in this in the in the weight of the merger. There's 
a decent amount of evidence, given how many producers were cycling around and working on this, that this is actually what happened. But again, I have no real proof that that was a deliberate thing. It might have just been completely coincidental. Either way, the reason I mention all of this stuff is that all happened in production senses right after this episode. This was when that announcement finally came out. Hey guys, you know, season two has been greenlit, and the cast and crew were informed of that. That's important because that helps to explain why Shatner then was so insistent that they needed to finish the shoot. They couldn't interrupt the shoot and have more financial problems and budget problems and delay problems like had been plaguing season one in general. It is worth noting that what ended up happening is Shatner finished his work for that day and they actually prioritized all of the work that Shatner needed to be doing. And so they would, they did like sliced up scenes throughout the episode that were Shatner heavy. And then he went to the funeral, to, to, to his father's funeral and to, to go to the wake and all that. And they kept filming the scenes that didn't include him or the ones that did, they used his stunt double in order to just, and just kind of shot it from the back, you know? So you can kind of see how all of this still lines up. It's just, I'm fascinated to think about and kind of horrific in its own way. But I have one other important thing. There's one other reason I'm bringing up this story. If you, even in this book right here, there's an entire chapter, like several, several sections uh, in the season two lead up here, devoted towards the so-called feud between Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. Now, I mention this because by every account I have ever read, that feud doesn't really exist. Oh, sure, there was some professional rivalry, but like really low-tier stuff. Shatner did line count. There's plenty of evidence of that. Shatner himself has admitted it. And there, there was a bit of pushing back and forth as to who should be, you know, who, who should get more screen time, basically. But that was the career side of things. By all accounts, Leonard and William actually were pretty good friends. One of the interesting things, though, is I don't really see any references to how good the friends are until this episode. It's mentioned here, who, who is the direct quote here? Uh, Pevney, the director here, flat out mentioned that Leonard actually was there for, I should stop calling him Leonard, Nimoy. Nimoy was there for Shatner. That while Shatner was dealing with this and coping with the grief of this, Nimoy specifically and personally reached out to him to try and help him, not just to get through the shoot, but just as a friend. I posit now the theory, this is officially the event that actually connected the two as friends, built that bond that helped the two to actually be the comrades that they would be, and the rivals that they would be, over the next 40 years after this point. 50 years, now that I'm thinking about it. It was a long time. Probably closer to 40, 45, something like that. All of that is, of course, theory crafting based on what evidence I do have. And I, I, I'm curious, as ever, what you think. And I'm sure there's one person. In like three weeks, I'm going to get one person. Uh, actually, that's not true, and here's my source, and I'm going to feel like an idiot. But that, that's what making videos on YouTube is. You, you, put for, you do your work, you put your forth the information, you do your due diligence, you put it out, and then people tell you you're wrong. Some of them are right, because we all make mistakes and we screw up, and I do try to correct those whenever I can. And then some people are just trying to be dicks. I'm not saying you guys are. It's just that's, that's how the Internet works. So I look forward to finding out how I'm wrong about this. Another thing I find look forward to is just laughing. I've seen multiple accounts of this story. Uh, Janus, and I know it's pronounced that way, uh, Prohaska, who was a costume person, he actually made the Horda costume based on a costume he had actually already used for another creature over in the Outer Limits. Now, he touched it up a bit. But he put this together and did this whole presentation 
And Gene Kuhn looked at it and was like, what is this nonsense? Then the, he actually got into it and showed it animated and did this whole little sketch right in front of him that he prepared with the thing, laying an egg and going and eating a chicken and just all this little, little stuff. And Kuhn was sold on it. In hindsight, I can kind of see why. If nothing else, it presented something distinctly alien, which hadn't really been done on the show before. Everything else had been bipedal, you know, humanoid, with a little bit of makeup or a mask, and that's about as far as they'd gone. I can see why, even despite the fact that even you know, the effect has not exactly aged well, you could see the Horda and be like, okay, yeah, I, c I can work with that. And that's exactly what Kuhn did. Which leads me to my second segue before we really dig into the episode itself. Uh, if you're wondering, by the way, I actually don't have much to say about the episode itself other than seminal Trek, like I already mentioned. But I want to talk about Gene Kuhn. I've done a lot of digging into Gene Kuhn's uh, contributions to the show and his presence. One of the things, uh, William Shatner in particular, hammers this point on and did so repeatedly for years that Kuhn was one of the biggest contributors to Trek, to, to the very concept of TOS and how it worked. I, I think I've said this before. To, in my mind, Kuhn and Fontana were the two people who had, really had their finger on the pulse of what Trek was at its very core the very heart of this series and this franchise. Um, unfortunately, Gene Kuhn would die just a few years after Trek finished coming out, which is a goddamn shame, if you'll excuse me. I cannot... That, that is so horrible, and almost assuredly contributed in part to why, for several years, his name was just kind of quietly removed from credit for a lot of things. It wasn't until people were like, well, hang on a second. Again, Shatner himself, but also... Um, Mr. Solo, one of the things that that really pushed Solo and Justman to write uh, this book, which is down, you know the one, the Inside Trek book, is specifically because of how much credit was being pulled away from people who deserved it, like Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn also is the person who was the... the I don't want to say line producer, because that's actually inaccurate, but he was... Everyone says that he was acting as a producer, even though that wasn't his title, and... He was obviously rewriting a huge amount of episodes, and he was the person making a lot of calls on the spot. He was the person on the set. He was the go-to person who was in charge, whereas Roddenberry was more doing uh, executive production stuff, trying to make sure the show in general kept going and having executive oversight, that kind of thing. Again, I'm not trying to dismiss Roddenberry's uh, contributions. That's not the goal. I'm just trying to highlight Kuhn's contributions. He was the guy in the trenches. Sound familiar? He's also the one who brought us a lot of what is considered some of the best of Trek. Errand of Mercy would be under his thing. Uh, Journey to Babel was one of his last contributions, not counting some later things. Uh, he also tried to bring more levity into Trek. Uh, Piece of the Action was him. Trouble with Tribbles was him. I bring all this up, though, because this episode right here, this very one, which he wrote by himself. This wasn't a rewrite. He just sat down and wrote this episode. I think more than anything, to tie it back to the episode, this proves how well he knew Trek. What is the premise of this episode? There's a monster. Oh no, it's actually an intelligent creature. And we have to understand it and ex explore with it. And we come to a peaceful resolution, which is mutually beneficial for all of us. And God, isn't that just so Trek? I don't even mean that as a bad thing. I love that. One of my favorite things about STO was how they get that tone so well in so many of their story arcs. I, I'd love to spoil and gush about several aspects of STO. All I'm going to say is the Iconian War. That's all I'm going to say. If you saw the lore run, you saw me just 
gush about how that ended because it was such a trek way for things to go. Um, notice the way that this episode is presented and constructed. Uh, in science fiction, especially at the time, you saw a monster and that was all you needed to see. No, no explanation was needed. No, no dissertation, no why attached. It's a monster by its very nature, by the definition of using the word monster. It's just an evil thing or a destructive thing that destroys the end, right? It's like some of the older approaches to Dungeons and Dragons. You see a goblin, you attack it on sight. Why? Because always chaotic evil. In the monster manual, right? This then proves how, how this is something that was so latched onto by so many different people. Because this, the beginning of this episode, almost the first, uh, I actually wrote it down, first 18 minutes or so, the, 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 the monster, which isn't seen, by the way, is treated like a horror movie monster. Three times they show the same perspective where it, it cuts to the guy and he's like, Oh my god, no! And then the, the horde overtakes it and kills it, and we only see just the outer edges of it, and that's it. It is treated exactly like that word in the classical sense. Monster. They find out there's been tons of deaths. The locals are all upset about this, obviously. We see the silicon orbs. A lot of the stuff is put in place early on, too. The script is very tight. I like it. We also get two ticking clocks. One is obviously the fact that this thing is killing people, but the other is the fact that it just took their reactor thing. Side note, I actually have no idea how it knew which specific reactor thing to take. I know they say it's intelligent. Um, I'm intelligent, but I couldn't tell you which piece to remove from a, a random turbo lift in order to disable it, right? I mean, I'm... I'm Give me a little bit, I might figure it out, but the Horde has, does a precision strike attack here, which also it doesn't make sense that it takes it rather than destroying it, but let's ignore that for a moment. Um, we have... Even the directing early on is done differently than normal Trek. A lot of quick jumps back and forth between things. Captain, this thing is dangerous. Dun -dun 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 -dun. Eats a person, and then it cuts back. You know, It just jumps all over the place to, to show that variance in tone. This also is interesting, by the way. Uh, they mentioned that this thing is silicon-based, a silicon-based life form. Wow, that's something. I sure hope that the Federation completely forgets that this ever existed by the time Home Soil comes out. A lot of you pointed that out in the comments of Home Soil. I noticed. I noticed. It's a TNG episode, for those you don't remember. One of the things I find fascinating is a huge amount of the non-canon works have expanded to include the idea that the Horda are, you know, just regular parts of the Federation by, say, the movies. This is supported by quite a few things, ignoring the fact that the Horda actually show up in a Nakudagram over on DS9. My personal favorite thing, and I don't remember if I commented on this in Star Trek IV, is that one was supposed to show up in the Federation council chambers of Star Trek IV. In other words, that there was a Horda representative, which makes perfect sense. They are sentient, sapient, intelligent beings. There's nothing preventing that. If you look up, uh, if you just do a random Google image search, I was looking up something about the Horde and I noticed this. There's actually a the USS uh, No Kill Eye, which is the first Horta crewed ship. It looks kind of cool. Anyways, it's just fascinating because the Horta never actually come back. I'm just going to spoil that. Other than a couple of references, they're never really come back in the future, which is a damn shame because I think this is a cool species that they could do a lot of cool things with. We could even theorize, does this thing have anything to do with the Silicon Avatar? Like, obviously, they're not directly connected. Just, just food for thought. Anyways, 
So there's this huge buildup. There's the life support crisis. Oh, yeah, that's another thing they, they do a good job of. They, even before we found out about the pump and the ticking time bomb that has currently been set up, we find out that this is a crisis regardless. We need this pergium. We need it because this is the thing that a lot of systems are run on or with, and they need it to function. It's life support is specifically mentioned, by the way. This, again, helps to... Once again, we, we've successfully challenged the crew by giving them a dilemma rather than an enemy of the weak or something that they need to survive. Now, I know that sounds strange, given what I just mentioned about the monster episode, but really, the dilemma here is getting the mind working, not getting out. If they wanted to evacuate, they could have done that the moment the Enterprise showed up. It's even mentioned as an option at one point, and in fact, everyone except for a few miners are evacuated once things get critical. So, that's not the threat. Just interesting to consider. So then, at 18 minutes and 30 seconds, we finally see the thing. And, okay, yeah, it, it looks a little silly, I'll be honest. But it's still a fascinating concept. Can I do a quick sidebar here, if you don't mind? Stuff like this is why whenever... Haha, ha, like I'm ever getting there. Whenever I start making my own television, whenever I start making my own shows and movies and books and games and all the other stuff I want to make, I'm going to lean heavily more on the animation side of things. Live action has its place, and there's a plenty of awesome stuff in live action, but I would rather have a CGI show kind of like Clone Wars or Rebels you know, a stylized approach, which allows me to show something like the Horta rather than having a guy in a in a suit kind of shuffling around on the ground like we have in this episode. I know, I know. Special Practical effects and effects have gotten better over the last uh, 50 years, but still, food for that. I was thinking about that today anyways for unrelated reasons. So Spock theorizes, then they had, you know, it's a crime against science to actually hurt this thing. We should try to capture it instead. This is a good time to point out that the only reason Spock and Kirk are alive here are because they shot it with more powerful phasers, which are never brought up again ever, by the way. In, in other things, they just turn up the setting on the phaser, which would also carry over into TNG. But here they actually have another phaser, which is stronger. No, no, no judgment, just pointing it out. So they shoot the thing, it rushes off. This also is, it leads to a funny scene where Kirk tries to send Spock away on an, in an illogical manner. Spock immediately calls him on it like, Dude, what are, you, what are you doing? Well, I don't... Okay, look, I don't want you to die, Spock. If I die, sure. If you die, sure. But we can't both die. And Spock's like, listen, the odds of us both dying are really low. Oh, okay, I'm convinced then. Let's head off. And then they head off um, together. I remind you that earlier, if they hadn't shot the Horta with their more powerful weapons, they would have both died together. I think Spock just didn't want to leave his bud. I don't blame him. I wouldn't either. In fact, it, it, the scene actually is more amusing if you think about it from that angle. No, Captain, I will not leave your side. I will never leave you, Senpai. Anyway, anyway so <laughs> this leads to uh, the thought that they're being watched. I hate to nitpick this episode even more, but how does he know that? He never gives information on how he knows that. I actually have a theory. You remember how he had that good peripheral vision and that's shown up a few episodes? Uh, Space Seed is a good example of that. Maybe he just literally saw it out of the corner of his eye and was like, so... Also, I'll never forget that line, Captain, we are being watched, because it was used for some time as kind of a joke. You know, back before the term meme was really being used, it was effectively a Star Trek meme. You know, you'd see, Captain, we are being watched, as we're watching Star Trek. You, you get the idea. <clears throat> this also then leads to probably one of the better scenes in the episode. The Horta approaches Kirk. Kirk 
raises... He's actually got a phaser gun, so forgive me. I'm just going to use my usual prop here. Raises the phaser pistol at it, and it backs off. Kirk doesn't fire. He considers that. Then he lowers the weapon. Creature comes forward. And then it looks like I'm screwing up my green screen effect. Yeah, I am a little bit. Let's scooch forward here a little bit. There we go. <clears throat> so then he, he raises the weapon again, right? And the creature backs off again. This is brilliant. This is wonderful showing, not telling right here. I'm not even joking. I've, I've talked for years about the methods by which we can communicate without words. When you, no long, when you lack the ability to speak to someone in a language they understand, there are dozens upon dozens of ways we can communicate. And it actually irritates me when fiction doesn't get that right. But by the same measure, I love it when fiction does get that right. Like right here. Him, his simple use of the phaser and how he's, he's doing that gets across the idea, nope, nope, back off, nope, okay. Well, I haven't shot you, and you haven't approached me. So we've got a standoff. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and sit. I'm going to keep the phaser kind of up, but not overtly threatening. Communicating. He th then, then he actually talks to Spock, who insists, you must kill it immediately. Which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because, logically speaking, this is a deadly dangerous situation in which the risks outweigh the benefits. You have to shoot. And yet, I have to point out that tactically, that would be very stupid. Why? Because even though the shot hurt the thing, it's not going to kill it, probably, before it reaches you. If Kirk was to open fire, he would probably kill it and die in the attempt. Ergo, tactically, that might not be a sound strategy, at least not while they have this standoff. What would be more sense-making tactically is for another person with another gun to show up, which Spock then does. This then leads to the, the main part of the episode, where they reach out to the creature and they learn that it's in pain and they learned about the eggs. And you, you get it. This is an intelligent creature. The miners uh, came in, destroyed the things. Holy crap. We find out Starfleet guards are terrible, as usual, as they're overrun by a bunch of guards with pipes and clubs. There's actually a cool thing where Spock uh, reaches out to it psychically. And at first I was like, well, doesn't he have to touch to do that? But then I remembered actually back in the Taste of Armageddon, he was able to psychically reach out to the guard on the other side of the door. And it's also mentioned that that's only a vague thing. That's why he's only able to get pain out of this. He has to actually mind meld to get more out of it, right? Okay, that makes sense. Except for the fact that it apparently learned English in that brief contact where all he felt was pain. Because then it says, no kill I. Um, you know what? I'm not going to make fun. It kind of makes sense. This then leads to McCoy being brought over and said, McCoy, cure this thing. It's like, okay. McCoy comes up with the idea of bringing down, this is important, uh, thermal, uh, this, this kind of concrete, which has silicon base, which they use to make thermal shelters. So they have the ability to use material on the ship to make thermal shelters in cases of severe weather. I wonder how useful Sulu would have liked that back in Enemy Within. You just, I know the whole beam up, beam down was thing was a problem, but why not just beam down the thermal? I know it wasn't part of the original script. And it hadn't been invented yet. I just I, I wanted to poke fun. Vanderberg, the mining leader, he is surprisingly amiable. In fact, I the whole episode I was worried he would turn into yet another obstinate bureaucrat, which for obvious reasons I don't care for that archetype. He's not. He's mostly upset because obviously things are down and profits are down, but also people have been freaking dying. That's why they're so bloodthirsty toward the end. 
Check this out. He gives back the thermal pump, and then he mentions you burst in there and killed its eggs. Now, this is very cool. Vanderberg is actually horrified by that, as he should be. As anyone, you know, who, any decent person would be horrified. Oh, my God. I killed how many hundreds of your eggs? Unintentionally? Accidentally? We had no way of knowing. We, we, we couldn't know. Like, he almost gets defensive. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. Which is a nice element to humanize him. This also then makes sense because he's angry and this thing has killed his people. Finding out that he killed its babies, her babies, then serves as a... It's a shock. It's an emotional shock to the system to help break him out of that rage state, which is necessary, because otherwise the ending of this episode would be a little bit too pat, right? It's like, oh yeah, it's cool that you killed people, we're going to get more minerals. No, it's more like, you killed people, we're going to forgive that because we killed your people. Accidentally, we're sorry, you're sorry, mutual co cooperation, mutual connection with it. This also then leads to the, re the reason Hortus tend to be used in ancillary works is because they're apparently really, really good miners, and they're going to go and get a lot of mining done in exchange for basically mutual coexistence. The only thing I don't like about that is I wish there was more of a give and take, because the Horta are going to dig and, and find minerals and get nothing out of it, and the humans are going to leave the Horta alone, and all they get out of it is tons and tons of wealth and minerals. It, it's like... Can't we give a little bit in addition to taking? <sighs> Either way, this is some fascinating stuff. Some good Trek, really. I, I do mean that. I I've poked fun, obviously. But this shows why Kuhn is awesome, why Pevney no knew his stuff, why Trek is what it is. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. See you next time.